0: Are you denying that such an organization known as The Foot exists? I'm not denying anything. Again, you're putting words into my mouth. Hey Tatsu, I broke another TV. I'm starting to run out. I need more TVs. The following is an in-depth story analysis and retrospective. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. The live-action 1990 Ninja Turtles film was one of the very first subjects for Superhero Rewind, and it's one of those movies I've always wanted to revisit, partly because I didn't sink my teeth as deep into story meat in the early days, but also because I don't agree with everything my nine-year younger self said about it. I'm gonna argue with 2009 Captain Logan a bit in this review, and I'm also gonna try to better articulate some of those points I'm still with myself on. I called the movie a sacred cow. I think the term I was looking for was guilty pleasure. I was borderline apologetic for liking what critics at the time, including Roger Ebert, thought of as unimaginative, lowbrow nonsense, and I think I overcompensated because I had just graduated with my creative writing degree and I didn't want to look like I was giving mediocre comic fluff more credit than it deserved. And certainly, Ninja Turtles is in a different category than The Dark Knight or Logan. This is an escapist popcorn comic book movie before it's a mind-altering multi-layered intellectual experience. It's a story about four mutant turtles who fight other ninjas in the New York urban jungle, mentored by a giant rat and palling around with a TV news reporter. It ain't no cartoon, but it ain't Citizen Kane either. It wants to be taken seriously, but not too seriously. It's not Man of Steel, but it's not the 2014 movie either. In trying to have some perspective, I ended up looking a little prudish and maybe even pretentious. I let my nostalgia for the material get the better of me in the opposite way I did Batman 1989. I was too hard on this one. Rather than judging it by what it was trying to achieve, I judged it too much based on what other movies like it had done. Like Ghostbusters. I complained that the Turtles didn't save the day, and they should because their names are in the title. Well, 2009 Captain Logan, of course the Ghostbusters defeat the ghosts. They don't have a mentor with a ghost disarming cane that can pop up at the end and show them how it's done. This and Ghostbusters are both comedies, they both have teams of four protagonists, and they were both heavily merchandised for kids, but that's about where the similarities end. The Ghostbusters aren't heroes so much as four guys who start a new business, just want to make a living, and aren't very responsible about it. The Turtles are trying to save their father. Those guys are just cleaning up their own mess. I do still have issues with the third act of this movie, but it's not based on an arbitrary standard of title rules. A title with a character or team name should probably feature those characters as the protagonists, or at least as the POV characters. I wouldn't change the Amazon Tick series name to Arthur, just because he has the central character arc in the first season. The problem with this movie isn't that it doesn't conform to some formula. Its real issue is that it doesn't deliver the resolution that the rest of the movie demands. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with what's awesome about this movie, and we'll get back to talking with my decade-old self toward the end. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a risky experiment on a lot of levels. And what I love about it is all the crazy stuff it tried that might not have worked, but miraculously came together to make something unique, and yes, imaginative. It's a lot like Star Wars in that way. Even as the film released, director Steve Barron, lead puppet master Brian Henson, I don't know if Puppet Master is his official title, but that's what I'm calling him, Mark Friedman, the man who licensed the Turtles and was responsible for getting the toys, cartoon, and movie off the ground in the first place, and Turtles creators Eastman and Laird themselves all had no idea if the movie would be a hit or a flop. There wasn't a lot of confidence from anyone involved that this odd blend of gritty realism and unabashed absurdity would be accepted by the general public. There certainly wasn't much confidence from Hollywood. No studio except New Line would distribute it. Fox signed on early and then pulled out after the movie was made. Even commercial endorsements were hard. Pizza Hut didn't back the movie until home video, once it had broken records. But incredibly, the movie appealed to different kinds of people on different levels, and it turned out to be strangely accessible. A lot of adults liked it because it felt like a real movie with some actual style and gravitas, not a glorified episode of the cartoon they were dragged to by their kids. And kids loved it because enough of the elements of the TV show were there, but they also, myself included, felt like they were watching something more grown up, that it was as much for their parents as it was for them, which made it feel more legitimate. It was like a graduation of sorts. Of course, that metaphor breaks down immediately because after you graduated, you then had to go right back to the same classes you were taking before on Monday. I said when I reviewed the Coming Out of Their Shells tour that a lot of formulaic and nonsensical cartoons felt more serious and made more sense to us as kids because we filled in the blanks for ourselves when we played with the action figures. This movie was like watching the thing I always thought it was in my head. The original action figure designs were based on the comic turtle designs before there was ever a frame of animation, which is why they look meaner. And I don't think it's an accident that the turtles wear that expression frequently in the film and on the poster. I finally got to see the toys I had been playing with in action, rather than their toned down cartoon counterparts. It was the most commercially successful independent movie of its day, and I don't think most kids realized it was a glorified B-movie, not backed by a major studio, and made for a third of the budget of Batman. Originally, it was supposed to be made for more like half of its ultimately 13 million dollar budget. But as over budget as it was, it's astounding what Baron and his team managed to do with that money. The indie feel, which it just has to have because that's what it is, gives the movie a dirty, street-level credibility it may not have had were the world its oyster. Although Batman managed to achieve something sort of similar, though more stylized in its ambiguous, more timeless context, taking so many of its visual cues from Blade Runner. Ninja Turtles looks more like, I don't know, Chinatown? There was certainly a lot of invention through limitation, and yet the movie also pushed the threshold at the time of animatronics and puppetry, using brand new, extremely unreliable technology to make the Turtles come to life. Miraculously, it absolutely worked. Not just that the faulty tech cooperated enough to actually get the movie done, but we the audience bought it. The performances are so believable, it's easy to forget you're watching actors wearing suits with servos in their heads to move with the dialogue. It takes some of the sorts of risks Howard the Duck did just a few years earlier, except the technology was just good enough to make the creatures believable this time. Baron was smart not to shoot the turtles in broad daylight, and this movie had a more concrete vision that, at least as it was being conceptualized, wasn't overly concerned with trying to appeal to every person on the planet. And Turtles has a relatively cohesive script to back up the visuals. I've complained about music video directors being selected for feature films in the past, guys that know how to string together a series of images and make them exciting, like Zack Snyder, but don't necessarily understand anything about compelling storytelling. Baron was picked for his aesthetic, having made videos like Aha's Take On Me and Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, but he'd also worked with Jim Henson's Creatures on the TV series The Storyteller, and luckily he had a good eye for story continuity as well as atmosphere. And it's made with a Hong Kong action team, so the stunts are legit. All the right pieces were there to realize a vision, and I think the reason it was so successful is because it starts with the Mirage comics as its blueprint rather than the cartoon show. Some of that is luck. The film was conceived right around the same time as the TV show was being put together. And if that gold had been struck earlier, the movie may not look as much or anything like the one we got, except for maybe the saving grace of Batman influences. I don't mean to say that it's automatically a great movie because it has reverence for the comics or because it uses that source material. The comic geek in me retroactively appreciates the Casey Jones stuff taken straight out of the Raphael Micro series, the antique shop fire from issue 10, and the retreat to Northampton directly after, a status quo that lasts at least a year in the comics, but only a few minutes in the film. I'm honestly not sure how long they're supposed to be there in this. But because the development begins with the comics, which have, of course, a lot more genuine drama and pathos than the cartoon, its heart is in a place to naturally create something cinematic with a real, coherent, and potentially emotionally moving narrative. The guys who made this film weren't even interested in the material until they cracked open the comics and saw these spectacular artwork and dynamic panel layouts. Perfect storyboards for an engaging film. If only they could figure out how to make the mutant protagonist come alive. If Turtles had already been the huge phenomenon when Golden Harvest began to consider making the film as it was in 1990, whoever greenlit it would almost certainly have had the attitude behind the Coming Out of Their Shells tour. This property is hot, and we've got to milk as much money out of it as possible before it loses traction. I think that might have been a triple metaphor, but you get the idea. That is very much the attitude Paramount had in developing the 2014 movie. Capitalize on brand recognition, not make an adaptation of an idea with real cinematic potential. And that movie was so flavorless and unremarkable, moviegoers hardly even remembered it had happened by the time the sequel was rushed out just two years later. Now that's not to say that competent, even inspired storytellers never get a hold of a movie whose initial goal is to simply sell tickets and product. I give you the Lego movie. But often, those movies are watered down to their most base, most recognizable, safe story elements, with counterintuitive stuff sprinkled in to try to appeal to demographics that wouldn't otherwise turn their money over, like putting baby food on a pizza. Happily, that didn't entirely happen here. This movie does tell an actual story with a poignant thematic crux about what true families and true fathers are. It's not a deeply told story, and the emphasis is more on the atmosphere, martial arts, and comedy. But the foot scheme of conscripting neglected and jaded kids into their gang with the lure of freedom to do whatever they want and under the pretense of family is certainly topical for the late 80s and early 90s, with urban upheaval, juvenile delinquency, and absentee parents all major concerns and big issues in the news. It's not a deep meditation on those issues, and it doesn't go as far with any of them as it might have, especially the turtle's coming-of-age story, learning to cope with the loss of a parent and take his teachings into their future, but it has much more substance than a toy commercial. Critics who claimed the movie wasn't about anything except cashing in on the popularity of a fad were, I think, projecting their concerns about what they saw as a mindless, unstimulative TV show, and in Ebert's case, the Nintendo game. I guess he didn't realize at the time that the Turtles were a comic first, onto a movie they didn't bother to take on its own merits. I don't think I would have had to know all the background I just laid out. The movie borrowed more from the comics than it did from the cartoon show in order to see the actual story merit that is in. In this movie. But some of that is understandable. While the movie largely gets away from the who is this four trap Howard the Duck drowns in, that tightrope it walks between the grit and the cartoony certainly wobbles in places and no doubt confused a lot of uninitiated adults. If it had been a full-on representation of the zany TV show, you could dismiss it as harmless, silly children's fare, and adults probably wouldn't have thought twice about it. If it was as I suspect was the idea at the movie's inception, totally serious, with all the comedy emanating entirely out of the absurdity of the concept and situation, deriving the tone completely from the Mirage comics and not at all from the animated show, adults might have complained about falsely advertising an adult movie to children, but they might have picked up more on what the movie is actually saying. I think the story and tone were very likely compromised, to some degree, by the popularity of the light-hearted TV show. According to TMNT The Ultimate Visual History, Steve Barron wasn't getting along with Golden Harvest during post-production, and he wasn't fully involved in the editing process. The book also reports that editing duties originally fell to Sally Menke, who later edited Quentin Tarantino's movies. The studio didn't like her sensibilities and fired her. The movie would have had a, no doubt, much different look and feel if she stayed much darker and more squarely for adults. There are also a lot of nods to and influences from the cartoon that I doubt were there from the beginning. So there's plenty of evidence that the movie was changed from its purest form, which I think might have bordered on R-rated material to appeal to a larger demographic, namely the kids the property was already being sold to. I think it overcompensates in some places by getting a little inappropriately toony, but in hindsight, it was a clearly wise business move, even though, again, the folks behind it weren't even sure about it when the movie came out. It might have been a better film without some of the goofier elements, but I don't think it would have been as commercially successful. It worked for audiences at the time because it retained enough of that grit to give it some authenticity, but was enough like the show that parents took their children and it didn't give, at least most of them, nightmares. Although parents were vocal enough about the violence, it was toned down to an absurd and crippling degree for the sequels. Of course, there's no Krang or Dimension X or Vernon or even the Turtle Van in this movie. But we get all that in the Michael Bay-produced movies, yay, in a desperate attempt to capitalize on nostalgia. However, there's an attempt at mixing some of the well-known iconography from that show with the comic material it hardly goes with. And it's impressive how well-integrated it is, even if it isn't a perfectly blended milkshake. April is a reporter like in the show which she's not in the early comics. And I'm not sure why the TV network has changed from Channel 6 to 3, but whatever. And she has a yellow raincoat as a nod to the yellow jumpsuit she wears in the cartoon. That choice isn't wasted as a narrative device. It allows the movie to open with a couple of pages of exposition to set up the foot's silent crime wave and establish the occasion for story. We're being dropped in this world here and now because of the Turtles' interference with the Shredders gang, and saving April, who is also causing him headaches, will be the inciting incident. This allows a major character, familiar to fans, to deliver necessary information in an unobtrusive way and immediately engage a lot of the audience with an opening that might otherwise have been yawn-inducing. The Turtles' affinity for pizza is taken from the show, but they don't bring it up every other word, like they have no other interests or hobbies and it only comes up when it's time to eat. The line is drawn between these more sensible, realistic turtles when Michelangelo pretends to like weird, disgusting toppings like the turtles eat in the show, and then it turns out he's just joking. They all use surf lingo and teen slang, which is another invention of the show. No, Michelangelo didn't say cowabunga in the comics before 1987. The kids in the audience would be lost with the monosyllabic purple prose of the first Eastman Laird issue, but it's not painful one-liner after another like it is in Ninja Turtles 3, and it's relatively clever about it, making every celebration after a triumphant battle a contest to see which of them can deliver the best catchphrase, with Donatello always overthinking it. I like at the very end when he keeps saying mega, trying to come up with something that sounds stellar right before Splinter says, I have always liked. They're all somewhat sarcastic and have a cocksure attitude, but they don't all sound the same and their personalities aren't interchangeable, like they are in later films and other efforts. We could use more time really fleshing out their differences, and as I said in my original review, Mikey and Donnie are both kicked to the side for the most part in favor of Leo and Raph. Who have their famed blow-up over Raf's impatience and Leo's refusal to hear him out when he thinks they should be out looking for their kidnapped mentor, Splinter, instead of sitting on their butts. Raph and Leo get the most character growth, and Mikey and Donnie get a lot of their screen time together, often as dual comic relief. Their distinct, prevailing character traits are all intact from the show and fused with those from the comics. So, Mikey is a jokester, but he's not an idiot, and Donnie is more book smart than his brothers, but he's not a super genius. And this may be the last time he's not portrayed as a Tony Stark-level inventor. The movie uses the cartoon's logo, and I wonder if that wasn't a last-minute choice in trying to create some synergy with the property at large. The cartoon's theme song would have been a step over the line, and I'm glad it's gone in favor of a mostly rock synth soundtrack, which is light enough to reflect its good-natured teenage protagonist, but dark enough to underscore their vigilante lifestyle and their outcast status. As I said, I think sometimes the toony stuff goes too far particularly in fight scenes. The sequence between the Turtles and the Foot in April's shop is wonderfully well shot and filled with genuinely funny moments, like Mikey versus the fellow Chucker ninja, and I buy the Turtles actual ninja skills and ability to vanish without a trace, well enough that their goofball antics work most of the time. They're well-trained fighters, but they're also still kids, as Splinter calls them. They mess around when they can afford to, and unlike their cartoon counterparts, they're quick to put on their game faces when things get serious. That's what I'm gonna start calling the 87 figures, the Turtles wearing their game faces. But it's funny enough without slide whistles or exaggerated sound effects or music that scores a scene like a cartoon. I thought that stuff was funny when I was a kid, And it's not like it ruins everything, but I really don't think anything would have been lost without it. And I think the sound mixing is often kinda overdone. That's where the cartoon influence is at odds with the movie's overall moodiness, and I suspect was one of the things Steve Barron was vetoed on. One of the changes the cartoon made from the comics, which the movie didn't adopt but I wish it had, is Splinter's backstory. He's Hamato Yoshi's pet rat here, like he is in the original material, instead of Yoshi himself sorry, instead of Yoshi himself, which I think would have made him more relatable in this more realistic context and served the story better dramatically. That's one of the few inspired changes the show makes, and I think would have maybe fit well in a more serious version. The trouble I've always had with the pet rat thing is that Splinter has to be way more intelligent than a real rat would be before he's exposed to the mutagen, mimicking his master's karate movements and comprehending... And remembering enough of it to teach his sons. The comic gets away with it better because it feels like a more absurd world and it's more stylized. This material, though a little lighter than that, seems too grounded for that. I also think Shredder and Splinter's rivalry would be more impactful if Splinter was Saki's old nemesis with a score to settle, rather than merely Yoshi's pet rat who scratched Shredder's face and got his ear sliced off. Two ninja masters who fight over the girl they both want to marry and leave after Saki kills her in anger. The honorable man, Yoshi, would wind up with a real family, though he couldn't have the girl and never even got a girl, and the other, Saki, would buy his family and use them to amass wealth and power. But instead, in the actual film, the rat takes his master's teachings, Yoshi, who was, for him, effectively a father, and raises the turtles to believe in the values of selflessness and compassion that the Shredder doesn't value or understand. The Shredder who has always bought or sold everything he wants and destroyed anything that doesn't work out or cooperate with him. So what we have works, and it's nice to kind of know where Splinter got his values from, but we don't have that for Shredder, and I mean, we don't get that for anybody else. I don't know if Casey Jones has daddy issues and where exactly his feelings about family come from, except for his interaction with the Turtles, and I don't know what Tatsu's deal is. Throughout the movie, we see examples of different kinds of families. Relatively functional ones, like the Turtles and Splinter. Totally dysfunctional ones, like April's boss and single father, Charles, and his rebellious son, Danny. And a non-family in the Foot Clan, a gang and cult masquerading as a family to children they can use as soldiers in their army. Through Splinter's example, the film defines family as not a group of blood relatives who are stuck together whether they like it or not, but as a nurturing group that you can choose to be a part of, supporting and encouraging one another and emphasizing individuality and personal growth, making each unique person the best he can be and strengthening the whole in the process. When Raphael struggles with his temper, Splinter doesn't berate him or try to make him act more like his brothers. He doesn't tell him not to feel the way he feels. He tells him his master always said that it was important to possess the quote right thinking, but importantly not the right feeling. He tells Raph that his feelings are manageable and that he doesn't have to go it alone. He offers him discipline to uncloud his angry mind, but he also comforts him just by telling him his family is there for him. Splinter always sees the best in people and gives them every chance to succeed. He isn't hostile toward Danny, despite the fact that he works for the people who have kidnapped Splinter and trust him up, although I doubt if he knows the extent of what Danny has done to his family, Danny being the one who told the Shredder where to find them. Instead, he asks Danny where his real family is, and when Danny says his father couldn't care less about him, says he doubts that's true. All fathers care for their sons. And side note, I've grappled with that line before. It's a nice sentiment, but sadly, in the real world, it's definitely not true. There are fathers who want nothing to do with their children or who have kids for their own ends and care nothing about what they want for themselves. There's just not love in every home, I'm sorry to say. But another way to interpret Splinter's line is that if a man doesn't care for his son, he's not a real father, like the Shredder. He's assuming Danny's father is a real father if that's what he means, and he has nothing to base that on except for Danny's innate compassion, which might be why he's banking on that. Splinter is the typical wise sage, but he does have a concrete philosophy beyond empty platitudes about honor and discipline. He's not Cogliostro, and sadly at no point tells the Ninja Turtles that they're playing right into Shredder's hands. Sort of like a mutated rat version of Fred Rogers, he cares about the nurturing and development of children above all else, and using his master's martial arts teachings to give his sons the tools they need to understand their feelings, to control what they do with those feelings, and be caring and compassionate people, or turtles, in a world that doesn't understand them and in which they'll always be outcasts. I really like that emphasis on nurturing the Turtles' hearts and minds as well as teaching them to defend themselves. The movie is thoughtful about the fact that Splinter is all the Turtles have in learning right from wrong, and without the right guidance, they could grow up with a really skewed, jaded outlook, turning into freaks from the sewers that just lash out at everyone who doesn't understand them. Splinter has a really hard job in raising children to care about other people who aren't even their species and who don't know they exist in a world that, like an X-Men, hates and fears them. Or would if they knew about them. And ironically, it's the freaks in the movie who live the most healthy and wholesome family life. By contrast, Shredder also adopts children and teaches them the ways of martial arts. He encourages them to be individuals as well, or at least, he entices them with the promise of freedom to be whoever they want, giving them access to all kinds of vices—alcohol, cigarettes, gambling—it's like Pleasure Island in Pinocchio. But that's all just a bribe. In reality, he doesn't care about their education or development, or even compensating them for a job well done. That arcade with the skateboard ramps is just the equivalent of sitting the kids in front of the TV and letting it babysit them. Those kids are signing up for a family that's too good to be true. The promise of whatever they want with no responsibilities but complete loyalty to a master, who will sacrifice them as quickly as he'd blow out one of his TV screens. He's just using them and, importantly, pretending to be a father who understands them in order to build an unstoppable army and, I guess, control crime in the city? Or just generically have a secret underground empire? I'm not sure if Shredder has any kind of endgame, or if he plans to just keep amassing stuff and wealth with the kids he perpetually conscripts into his perverse homeless boy shelter. Shredder's plot is a great heightened way to illustrate the isolation and separation a lot of teens feel from their parents. It's a commentary on the materialistic culture of the time, which has only continued to evolve since then with so much stuff being constantly sold to kids, so many distractions vying for their attention. And when parents neglect their children and don't give them proper guidance, they look to whatever the culture has to offer for a sense of acceptance. And there are plenty of predators waiting to take advantage of those kids, like the Shredder does Danny, when his father is too wrapped up in his work to give his son the attention he needs, and makes Danny feel like he doesn't care about him. Charles is the regular, everyday father in between the extremes of Splinter and Shredder. He does indeed care for his son, but he doesn't understand Danny's need to explore who he is and be his own person. Danny never really talks about why there's such a rift between him and his father, and it could be made more explicit, but there's just enough here to piece it together. His dad is a typical conservatively dressed, straight-laced businessman, and his son is a typical 80s wannabe punk with a Sid Vicious t-shirt and his head always buried in a pair of headphones. He's cutting class to be in the Foot Clan, where he's promised all the fun he can have and where he can steal things his father won't buy for him like his Walkman. The kid isn't prone to violence and quickly betrays the Shredder as soon as he realizes how in over his head he is. He's just looking for the belonging he can't get at home. We don't know what happened to his mother, but Charles seems to be totally overwhelmed as a single parent. I'm assuming he's a single parent. And he's coasting not because he sees his son as a nuisance he'd rather not have to deal with, but because he doesn't understand what the kid needs. At the end of the film, when Charles and Danny are reunited, and Danny realizes that he traded in his real family for a dangerous scam that might have gotten him killed, he did come face to face with the Shredder's claws when Shredder found April's drawing of Leonardo in his pocket, and I'm sure his life flashed before his eyes there. Danny tells his dad, It's just Dan now, okay? Dan. Indicating that he's just looking for his own sense of identity. Children need their parents to help them become who they are, not to program them to be who they want them to be. Shredder tells this gang of disenfranchised kids that he understands them because they're outcasts and teaches them to lash out against a world that hates them. While Splinter teaches his sons, who are outcasts, to help make the world a better place despite how it treats them, maybe for their sakes more than that of the world. Shredder makes his sons all wear masks to make them anonymous, to become his faceless literal foot soldiers. It's interesting that the Turtles are sometimes criticized even in this movie for being interchangeable, but there's a point made about their being raised to be individuals, mirrored with Shredder's actual indecipherable henchmen. I kinda like the idea that the different colored bandanas reflect a lack of uniformity, even though they're raised with the martial arts discipline to become one unit in battle, as opposed to the masks Shredder's foot soldiers wear, which are all the same. Now the different colors, of course, were added to the cartoon so each turtle would be easier to tell apart. They all wore red in the early comics. So that's not intentional, but it's a happy accident and I think it kind of plays. Danny is the character who has the most dramatic and profound character arc, and is crucial to illustrating the difference between Splinter and Shredder's fathers. I love that he's not a kid already on the streets without any family, but a very normal kid a lot of the children in the audience could relate to who has a dad already, but one who's dropped the ball and made him feel as much like an outcast as the turtles are. The turtles who, with the exception of Raphael at the beginning, are largely comfortable with their situation and are compassionate, well-adjusted teenagers who just happen to be big mutant reptiles. It's also ironic that a property that will become a huge mainstream cash cow, selling thousands of products directly at children, was turned into a low-budget movie about taking advantage of children. And about what real family and real happiness looks like. It's not like the original Power Rangers movie, which was a toy commercial and mind-bogglingly has an evils of mass consumerism brainwashing the youth and their parents plot without any self-awareness about it at all. Again, this story almost certainly wouldn't have been told if it was made any later than it was, but it gets off the ground before Turtles became the merchandising juggernaut Power Rangers would be a little later. And this isn't a criticism about mass consumerism, like that oddly seemed to be. Shredder's not out on the street in a purple suit, I mean well actually he is in a purple suit, but he's not on the street and he's not dressed like a wizard giving out vials of mutagen or something to kids, but it does read to me as a criticism of passive parenting, in a world where if you don't raise your kids, somebody else is going to do it for you, and they may not have your kids' best interests at heart. Raphael and Leonardo grow up some in this movie, like they do in the comics, when their argument about Raph's leap into action without a plan attitude leads to him going out on his own and getting his shell handed to him. So, that's the plan from our great leader, huh? Just sit here on our butts! Sort of ironically taking Leonardo's place in his one-shot, where he's the one who gets thrown into the shop by the Foot Clan. And they get a dose of reality when Rafa's almost killed, and they realize how much more important their family is, with Splinter still needing rescuing and likely not to make it, than Rafa's temper and Leo's need to control him more. About what I said before, uh, uh, you know, about not needing you at all. Like Leo. don't... Mikey and Donnie seem like they're not any more emotionally mature than Raph and Leo start as. They just haven't had their own personal journeys yet, and a smarter sequel would have taken them on a sobering trip of their own. And that would have gone a long way to fixing any complaint about there being a little one-note here. Not to say that a good sequel excuses story problems an initial outing has as a singular piece, but if this played like the first act of a longer story, it's a different ball of... Uh, turtle wags? A BALL OF TURTLE WAGS? Michelangelo and Donatello don't take themselves seriously enough, while Leonardo and Raphael take themselves a little too seriously. There's definitely a story there, and considering how many of the human characters in this movie play like protagonists themselves rather than just supporting players, it's understandable if all four turtles aren't the center of attention first time out, assuming you get more movies and they're handled right. And of course, there was no reason to assume this would. I appreciate that so much character stuff isn't forced in that it feels like an enormous cast without enough room to do all the stories justice, but as much as I like the Raph and Leo subplot, in hindsight, it watches a little like that's done because it's a great dramatic moment in the comics and it just wants to work that in somewhere, rather than because it naturally serves the grander narrative. I know those are fighting words to fans of this movie because the Raph-Leo rivalry is classic and gives us some of the best moments in the film. The tragic images of Raphael recovering in the bathtub on the farm and Leonardo propped against the doorframe, wrecked with grief, are both moving and brilliant and will forevermore be seared into my brain. But... At the end of the day, this isn't a coming of age story for the Turtles so much as one for Danny. with the Turtles as the gold standard for how to live as a family, and Splinter is the model parent. I suppose Splinter's kidnapping rattles them as a unit and threatens to tear them apart, illustrated by the Leo Raft drama. So that's a difficult interpersonal conflict they have to overcome, making their getting to Splinter more satisfying. So I guess it works on that level, but again, only half the protagonists deal with that, and it's not the central conflict of the piece. On this viewing, it really felt to me like the two big things at stake through most of the story are A, Splinter's life, and B, Danny's future. Once Splinter is rescued, which as I mentioned in the other review, is accomplished by Danny and Casey, not by the Turtles, There's not much at stake for the Turtles themselves anymore because even though they still think they're fighting to save their father, the audience knows Splinter's okay and we know the cavalry has to show up and save the day if they're unable to take Shredder down themselves. And we know the movie's not going to end with Shredder killing all the Turtles. I mean, even in its darkest form. There's no way that it would just be the reverse of the end of the first issue. Most of this movie is about the Turtles coping with the loss of their father and learning how to move on without him. Well, Danny's story is about learning to appreciate his father in the first place before it's too late. Before he can have what the Turtles have with Splinter. Mikey and Donnie have like one kind of serious moment and it lasts barely a few seconds. Right at the beginning in the sewer when they're waiting for the Domino's delivery driver. Donatello asks him if he's ever thought about what it would be like not having Splinter. Mikey is too preoccupied by the late delivery to respond and it's easy to forget about that beat right after. But that's establishing what comes to look like the Turtles main conflict. They're about to be on their own, unsure if they're ready to be without their father and mentor. Splinter tries to emotionally prepare them for his departure the whole movie, even talking like it's the very last time they'll ever speak, when he communes with them on the spiritual plane or whatever through the campfire. He says their ability to speak to him like this means they've learned the final lesson he has to teach them. They're ready, and he's ready to die. And then they return to New York, in a third act loosely based on Return to New York. Of course, still hoping to rescue Splinter despite his heartfelt you'll do fine without me speech. You know, the kind that you usually get in the if you're watching this I'm probably dead recording after a character has already bit the dust. Despite the fact that Splinter has served his purpose, and for this to really be the coming-of-age story for the Turtles it wants to be, he needs to tragically die at the end. The Turtles prove they're not ready to be without him by totally giving in to their emotions and running one at a time, half-cocked against the Shredder, rather than using Splinter's teachings, and especially for Raphael taking what he has just learned about controlling his anger and putting it to use. I'd be more sympathetic about their losing themselves like this if they knew for sure Splinter was dead, but Shredder baits them, lying about that, and they totally fall for it. So it has a name. It had a name. You lie! Do I? So Splinter shows up and saves them by taking down the Shredder himself, continuing to demonstrate his compassion by trying to save Shredder before he goes over the roof. And again, as I've talked about before, Casey Jones, who seems to have learned his lesson about excessive force, makes an exception for the Shredder because he's like the worst father ever, and because villains are supposed to die at the end of action movies. It's not a superhero trope first. Go back to Die Hard. Bad guys in action movies are supposed to fall from high places or get shot just before they fulfill their master plan. It's a rule, and Ninja Turtle seems afraid to break it. Or to let the wise sage die, even though that's where all roads have been leading. And by not doing that, it deflates the whole point of the Turtles part of the story. And that's why, once you have all of it, the Turtles feel more sidelined in their own movie. Now the problem is more presentation than the story beats themselves. It may have felt less like an easy happy ending if only there had been some discussion about the turtle's failure and their lack of discipline and maturity against the Shredder. If it were about the fact that Splinter was wrong and they really aren't ready to move on without him, Instead, it's the Ghostbusters victory dance. The turtles high-five and try to one-up each other with surf jargon again, Splinter makes a funny to get the cartoon catchphrase in there at the last minute, and they go back to business as usual, except they have human friends now and no place to live, which is dealt with in the sequel. You see why I'm smelling some compromise and making it more palatable for the kids? The third act, while it's entertaining and it is well shot and well choreographed as the rest of the movie, and while it does nicely resolve the Foot Clan isn't a real family thing. I love Casey's, by the way, you call this a family speech. You call this here and that down there family? It's just not a natural conclusion to the setup for the Turtles arc. I can't help but wonder if there wasn't a draft of the script where Splinter does die, but then the series got too popular and Splinter was considered too beloved to be killed off. So weirdly, after all that talk in other videos about how I've changed my tune on Splinter killing Shredder and not the Turtles being a problem, I find myself with a similar complaint, but for different reasons. The problem isn't that the Turtles name is in the title, so they should be the ones who do the bad guy roof dropping, The problem isn't even that they don't beat shredder it's that with splinter taking him out even though they have a past and that's closure for him and that is the personification of real fatherhood triumphing over the perversion of that which is satisfying thematically the turtles feel like they're stagnated when before they seem to be growing and progressing and frustratingly the movie glosses over it like it doesn't realize it I was wrong about it not really being their story just because they don't beat the Shredder, but it's certainly not the same story, at least for them at the end, as it is at the beginning. And that criticism is painful for me, because everything that happens makes sense plot-wise. I'm not saying it degenerates into an incoherent mess, like Batman 89. Like, I don't know what's going on at the end. This movie is really thoughtfully plotted and has a wonderful sense of continuity. Each scene naturally follows the last, actions create consequences, and I'm not confused as to how characters wind up from one place to another or feeling like easy coincidences are contrived to progress the story. Like in Power Rangers. This time I'm talking about the 2017 movie. It makes sense that the Turtles in April meet when they do. They're both on the same trail, trying to stop the same gang, April leads a foot soldier into the sewers, so Splinter's kidnapping follows, and I really like the realistic politics of the deal Charles makes with Police Chief Stearns to get his son out of jail time and how that impacts April. I don't think I fully appreciated what was really going on here until this viewing, which makes me wonder what other major plot points I'm missing in some of my favorite movies that I've watched a couple dozen times. Anyway, Danny gets busted, so Charles promises to get April off Stern's back if he'll take it easy on his son. April doesn't know that's why her boss is suddenly insistent that she lay off her brutal criticisms of the police's incompetence in her reporting, And of course, the police have to suck at their jobs or there would be nothing for the Turtles to do. So April doesn't listen because she has integrity and thinks, you know, that the truth is kind of important. Continues to take Stearns to task and then gets fired as a result, while her life is literally burning down around her. Not because she didn't do as she was told, but because Charles is trying to save his son through underhanded means. It's a great example of putting a character through the ninth circle of hell and seeing how they weather it. And the answer, of course, is family. Both April and Casey find a new family in the Turtles and in each other, and by the end, she gets her job back. Because I guess, with the Shredder dead and the Foot in shambles, Charles assumes April won't have any reason to give Sterns guff, which would lead to his son getting thrown in the slammer... I guess? So I don't love the ending, but at least plot-wise, everything that happens makes sense. This movie is great about setting up dominoes and knocking them down. I said it's great at setting up DOMINOES. There it is. Product placement. It makes the world go round. Speaking of Batman 89, as if I haven't already talked about that movie enough, it's interesting just how much this movie has in common with that film. It's true that it wouldn't have been made the same way, and certainly not as early, if it weren't for Batman, despite that the movie wasn't out when production started. Mark Friedman decided that Turtles needed a live-action movie when he saw all the merchandising for Batman 89. But of course, the movies only came out a year apart, and so this production couldn't have been directly influenced by the content of that film. Sometimes it seems like there's just something in the air. Both movies have a third act that feels watered down compared to the rest of the movie. The big finale is a fight on a roof and the bad guy falling to his death. They're both about a huge gang sucking the life out of the city and the local government powerless to stop them. They both feature elaborate subterranean sets. They both include a reporter who ends up befriending the dark hero or heroes lurking in the background. Both see their villain blowing up a TV screen when they don't like what's on it and in both, Shirley Walker is involved with the music. Wait, what? She directed the orchestra for Batman 89, and then she orchestrated this score? I never noticed either of those credits until recently. She was involved in the scores for both urban gritty comic book movies that started that trend through the 90s, and then went on to create all the music for Batman the Animated Series, the most influential superhero animated series of all time. Unsung Hero is an understatement. I really think Ninja Turtles, despite being a much smaller movie than Batman, solidified the darker tone and moody atmosphere a lot of superhero and action movies adopted through the decade. It was a surprise hit that did the same thing Batman did. It took a property that was, in the mind of the general public, a silly kids thing and presented something for adults that was just tame enough you could get away with taking your kids to it. And the studio could get away with advertising and merchandising it directly to children. And then we kept doing that for every single superhero or comic book thing that was not rated R. People still thought at the time of Batman as campy and comedic. And unbeknownst to the producers when they started developing this movie, that would be the turtle's reputation by the time the film was released. I don't think this movie could have been as popular without that contrast, whether it was a hit cartoon or not. So back to the ending for a minute, I have one more issue, and that's that Danny gets off WAY too easy considering all the trouble he's caused. Yes, he redeems himself by helping the Turtles find Splinter and by helping Casey to rescue him, but I don't think anybody realizes the extent to which this kid single-handedly ruined everybody's lives, and he never tells them! It plays like he's really owning up for his mistakes at the end when he gives April back that 20 he stole toward the beginning of the movie. But dude, you did way more than steal money out of a person. You know it. Either he's the kid hoping his parents don't find out that he not only glued his brother's fingers together, but also put a huge hole in his bedroom wall and covered it up with a Star Wars poster. Or, as I suspect, I'm supposed to read that moment as real character growth. This kid is the reason the Turtles and April lost their homes. He not only led the foot to the Turtles, but he got April fired because of that deal his dad made with Chief Stearns. Yeah, he might have learned his lesson about what a real family is, but he's got a long way to go in the honesty department. Before we get to my final thoughts and reading, let's find out what some of the viewers think of this movie with some tweet-linked reviews from the Secret Superhero Screen Society. Magpie's Nets Productions says, The best Ninja Turtles movie we have right now, four stars. Chewbacca's lover, Siskel and Ebert were way too hard on this movie. It's not perfect, but has a lot going for it, and deserved more credit than it got. Four out of five. From Bag Studios, during some of the action, I found the music choice highly distracting, and it made the film feel much cheesier than it would have otherwise. That said, it's cheesy in the absolute best way possible. It might not be good, but it sure is great. Rating, three out of four. From David Crabtree, the aesthetics and atmosphere provide a fun nostalgic ride. The interactions and relationships between the four brothers, particularly Leo and Raph, are the highlights. Messy writing and inconsistent character choices really keep the movie from excelling. Two out of four shells. From Thomas Edgehill, a surprisingly well put together movie of the 90s. Three and a half shells out of five. From Reg Cruikshank, A labor of love to the source material in a time where it would have been more profitable to just do what was expected of it. A flawed yet thoroughly entertaining experience, three out of four. And from Connor Shelton, an easy contender for best superhero movie of the 90s and a true joy, through and through. Four stars out of five. This remains the best Ninja Turtles movie because of its gritty, lived-in feel, its undeniable charm and heart, the actual effort made in creating real performances out of animatronic puppets, which of course the actors go a long way to selling, and because it pretty effortlessly tells an origin story without feeling like an origin story. Despite my issues with the third act and my frustrations about characters we just don't know enough about, like Casey Jones, I like what it has to say about what it means to be a real family, and it's about more than realizing an absurd comic premise on the big screen. It's about more and is a more cohesive piece, dare I say, than Batman 89. And it's one of the most rewatchable superhero movies there is. I'm giving Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles a three out of four. Oh, and hey, partners in crime? Turtle power rap guys? Um, Raphael isn't the leader of the group. I mean I love your rap and it's been in my head since 1990, but I don't know how you messed that up. That is a mystery I will never have the answer to.